0: of Sioux Falls Office of Adult Faith Formation. This is the
1: Prairie Roam Companion with Dr. Chris Bergwald. Hello, welcome to Prairie Roam Companion. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Bergwald, and uh, we have another two-part interview uh, for this episode, episode 12, and episode 13 upcoming. Uh, We'll hear today the first part of an interview that I did with Carl Olson, who is a convert to Catholicism, and is a writer and speaker on all, all sorts of Catholic issues. Uh, he'll be talking, uh, I, I am sure, about uh, the books that he's written. Uh, the the topic though is atheism and its various forms that we uh, we see it, especially in American uh, culture. And his his experience with atheism and. Um, what atheism is and its various forms and so on. So I really think you'll enjoy uh, the interview, and I'm looking forward to it as well. And we now welcome Carl Olson. Carl, thanks for taking the time this morning. Thanks, Chris. Great to be with you. Um, And as I I mentioned in the introduction, we're going to be talking today about atheism. And before we talk about why... you know, what atheism is, your interest in atheism and so on. I might be thought, I thought it might be good just to sort of recap, uh, well, who and what you are. So if you could just share with the audience maybe a little bit, uh, briefly, uh, I mentioned that you're a convert, uh, to Catholicism, but just, you know, like a, a 30, I know it's hard to do, but like a 30 <laughs> second summary of, of, uh, where, how you got to where you are today.
0: Well, I was raised in a fundamentalist Protestant home, attended an evangelical Bible college, and then in my late 20s, along with my wife, Heather, uh, became Catholic. That was 10 years ago. This marks the 10th anniversary of becoming Catholic.
1: Congratulations.
0: And thank you. And I have a Master's in Theological Studies from the University of Dallas, and um, I've worked in catechetical um, parish work for a couple of years, and I was editor of Envoy magazine for a couple of years, and now... For close to three years now, I've been the editor of IgnatiusInsight.com, which is the online magazine for Ignatius Press, and uh, I've written a couple of books, uh, including The Da Vinci Hoax. So that's a little bit about myself.
1: So what's The Da Vinci Hoax about? <laughs> it's
0: about the Da Vinci Code craze, which uh, thankfully seems to have now passed a little bit. But uh, So The Da Vinci Hoax is uh, co-authored with Sandra Miesel, who is a medieval historian, and we Originally wrote it back in 2003. It was published in 2004 uh, because we were running into so many people who had questions about um, issues being raised by the Da Vinci Code novel, which of course went on to set all sorts of publishing records. Dan Brown's novel did, selling some, I think it was close to 40, 50 million copies last time I heard, and of course a major motion picture and so forth. And that. Uh, produced a lot of questions about church history and uh, church practice and belief and related issues. So we wrote that book and um, uh, seemed to do do well with, with people who had a lot of good, uh, questions about those topics.
1: Good. Uh, for those uh, who were listening to this podcast, one of the prior, the prior episodes, previous episodes to the podcast, uh, one of the Theology on Tap episodes, we actually have uh, Carl's presentation on... Um, the Dimanche hoax, uh, when he was here in the spring of 2006, uh, I think that's what right. it was. I
0: I, um, I forgot about that. And that was spring, even though it was like 30 below. So yes.
1: <laughs> where do you live, No Carl? Hawaii is that is that I where uh, yeah.
0: I live? Well, six hours. Uh, <laughs> as the 747s uh, fly to the uh, east of Hawaii, actually right. in Eugene, <laughs> Oregon. Very good. Um, which is known for lots of wonderful things, including anarchist riots. <laughs> um good coffee, good beer, lots of hippies. Uh, it's a very interesting
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, place. I'm sure it is uh, and the other thing too, by the way, your your previous book, uh, when you were here, you and I talked a little bit about um I had read it and thought it was a terrific book. You want to talk a little bit about your first book as well?
0: My first book was, Will Catholics Be Left Behind? A Catholic Critique of the Rapture, today's Prophecy Preachers, uh, also published by Ignatius Press. And that came out of my background as a fundamentalist and then evangelical Protestant, and this belief in a rapture event separate from the Second Coming. And so in that book, I talk about the history of this belief system, the fact that it's a very relatively new belief. Uh, I look at the supposed biblical theological roots for that belief system, and then provide a Catholic critique and look at uh, what Catholic, what the Catholic Church officially teaches about the end times. And I really pinpoint the key issue being the relationship between the Church and the Kingdom, which is something that a lot of people overlook. Mm-hmm. Uh, they they focus, most people focus on the eschatology, the end times. I focus a lot on. The Christology and especially the ecclesiology, what we believe about the church, which I think is really the key issue.
1: And I, I, it's interesting they bring that up, and, and we're going to move to atheism here in a minute. But just one thing, when I read your book that struck me, which I didn't realize that so at the heart of the theology of the raptures, this understanding that uh, the church is basically a backup plan, uh, in a sense. It is. A
0: plan B is what I call it. And of course, it's never called referred to in exactly those terms by those who believe in it. But um, I show, and I have a wealth of quotes in there because I want to be very fair to what these folks, people like Kim LaHaye, Hal Lindsay, Charles Ryrie, et cetera, what they actually say. And I show that at the heart of really what we would call traditional dispensationalism, um, and there's a wide variety, a spectrum of beliefs about this, that's a fancy term, dispensationalism, for this idea of a rapture and a future 1,000-year earthly kingdom and so forth, um, that there is a radical separation between... The church and the kingdom, and then it really goes back to this idea that Jesus, when he offered a kingdom, a Davidic kingdom, originally to the Jewish people, that he was utterly rejected, and so he was forced to actually found a second people, which is the church. And it's really a, an amazing belief, and this is a, a a key belief of John Nelson Darby, who is the one who really originated this system, uh, brought it to fruition in the 1830s and 40s, and this is kind of the linchpin that he builds his entire system upon, including the idea of a rapture. The rapture becomes necessary to remove this other people of God, the Church, so that God can get back to his main objective on earth, which is dealing with the Jewish people. Um, And so I show through a lot of quotes uh, and so forth that this is really what is at the heart of this and what drives it and why it's uh, so incompatible with a Catholic view, not just a Catholic view, but also an Eastern Orthodox view. And I would say... The, the beliefs of many evangelicals, some of the strongest critics of this, are evangelicals from the uh, Calvinist or Reformed tradition. Uh, so it's not a Catholic versus Protestant issue so much, uh, even though there's some of that there.
1: Yeah, and of course Lutherans as well. Uh, right,
0: exactly. means what we might call mainline Protestantism, would never really agree, officially at least, with this belief
1: system. Right. Okay. And actually, that may be a good topic for another time, but for now, uh, we you and I thought that it may be interesting to talk about atheism. Um, and before we talk about why you're interested in it, I wonder if you could just offer your understanding or your definition of what atheism is.
0: Yeah, it's a great question, because I think for a long time that I, like many people, just thought of atheism as kind of a, a monolithic group of people who are just those who don't believe in God. And one thing that comes out of studying atheism, um, something that I've, I've done a little bit of, I'm, I'm certainly not the world's expert on it, but it does interest me a great deal, is that there are many different varieties of atheism. Uh, in some cases, it's it's very much an antagonistic uh, rejection of God, almost the sense that people might realize there is a God, or a legitimate argument for God, but just vehemently reject it. Uh, Some folks just come to a point where they claim that they've intellectually uh, reached a point where they can't hold to a belief in God, that there is no God. Um, And then there's this thing called, what we might call, practical atheism, which is something that's mentioned in the documents of the Second Vatican Council, especially in Gaudium et Spes, uh, which is when people live as though there is no God without really uh, trying to grapple with the arguments or the uh, possibility that there's a God. And I think this is really a a serious issue, obviously, if we just look around at our society, that there's a lot of people who don't even really contemplate whether or not there's a God, as oddly as it seems, Um, because I think Catholics, um, Christians who are serious about what they believe, really do grapple with those things, uh, my, in my experience. But it's it's fascinating to talk to people, uh, people in their 40s and 50s, uh, well-educated people, and to ask them, you know, what's the purpose of life, what do you believe, and they'll just give you a blank stare. And I've even had one of them say to me, point blank, I've never thought about that. This is a person with a, a master's degree uh, in, in his 40s. So I think this kind of practical atheism, just living life without any thought as to whether or not there's a God is one of the big uh, types of atheism uh, that's out there. And then there's atheists that come from kind of a scientific perspective or maybe an ideological perspective. You think of Marxism or communism or or those sorts of things, um, particular philosophical schools, um, materialist schools, people that are enamored with certain forms of Darwinian evolution who believe that there's no way that... That could have been a creator, a creator, a personal being who actually brought everything into existence. So there is a wide variety of of atheism, and this is captured very well by a quote from um, uh, Ignace Lepp, uh, who, and I believe I'm, I'm pronouncing his first name correct. I'm not sure. Uh, who wrote a great book called Atheism in Our Time back in the 1960s, and he was a convert from Marxism. And he wrote in this book, uh, it would not be at all false to say that there there are as many atheisms as atheists. This is something he really uh, highlights in his book. There's such a wide variety. So I think it's really important for us to to think about and to not just kind of lump everybody together if we think that they're an atheist or even if they say they're an atheist. That there's a lot of different reasons that people say that, and we have to be very careful in trying to figure out, Exactly where they're coming from, why they've arrived at that place, that belief or disbelief, as
1: it might be. I, it's somewhat similar, I think, for maybe the uh, the budding Catholic apologist who encounters a Protestant as yes. such and begins to employ various uh, apologetics arguments which don't pertain to that particular Protestant because maybe they're a Lutheran and he's arguing as if he's talking to an evangelical or something like that.
0: And, and you, you know you've. Had this experience too. I know where people will say we'll start out. You know, somebody who's into Catholic apologetics, and then very sincerely will say, "Well, Protestants believe," and then X, Y, Z. Well, chances are, <laughs> there's the chances are there's a large group of Protestants who don't believe in what you say because Protestantism is such a wide and varied body uh, of beliefs with uh, so many different thousands, thousands of groups and denominations and splinters and so forth. Um, you know, you've studied Lutheranism. In great detail, I came from a fundamentalist evangelical background, and even within within evangelicalism or fundamentalism, those terms are very broad because even within those, there are very wide um, gaps between what what people believe. So, I think the same thing does pertain to atheism. There are some similarities, can be, but we have to be very careful in trying to figure out where where individuals come from. And I think that's really a key in terms of evangelization and apologetics is. When you're dealing with an individual person, you need to be focused on where is this person coming from and trying to really get a sense of of what they believe, why they believe it, and not just place kind of our stereotypical views upon them unfairly. Um, Really respect who they are, where they're coming from, Specifically,
1: yeah, and and this reminds me of uh, Mark Brumley's book. Mark Brumley, uh, I suppose, in some sense, your boss at some levels, the president of the Yes, he is. <laughs> uh, and he he wrote a great little book published by Catholic Answers a few years ago, um, uh, "How Not to Do Apologetics: The Seven Deadly Sins of Catholic yep. Apologetics." Right? How not? To, yeah. How not to share your faith? How not to share your faith? Right. And one of the things he talks about is, I mean. I mean, I think sometimes the the word and the idea of dialogue gets a bad rap among Orthodox, or at least more zealous Catholic apologists, I should put it that way. But right. I think, as you said, we really need to, if we're going to be able to respond to somebody um, in, the, in the most efficient, the most adequate manner, we need to understand where they're coming from uh, before we start, you know, pulling out the shotgun and blasting away, so to speak.
0: Right, and, I, you know, here's a little anecdote from my recent experience and, and, I, and I'll just hasten to say by the way that I'm not the world's greatest evangelist um, and like a lot of people I sometimes shy away from those opportunities but we have some new neighbors where I live and I've gotten to know um, uh, my neighbor Mike who's about my age, a really nice guy, he's a lawyer um, we play, play darts in his garage and we talk about sports and this but we've talked about my book The Da Vinci Hoax he actually ordered a copy of it uh, from Amazon, and, and we've had an interesting talk. We started talking about the history of Christianity, and I have no idea where Mike is coming from. Really, I, I, I'm I'm trying to get engaged, but I don't really think we're at a point in our acquaintance where I could just blurt out. So, you know, what do you believe? Um, I just don't think it's appropriate yet, right. and so it's more of a just having these conversations. And so we started talking about the history of Christianity, and and. Kind of myths and, and false ideas, and I asked him, "Well, what do you think uh, in relation to the Da Vinci Code?" I said, "So, what do you what do you believe uh, about how many people were possibly killed during, say, the Spanish Inquisition?" Uh, because uh, we're talking about this in relation to the Da Vinci Code, and he said, "Well, probably hundreds of thousands would be my guess." And he, you know, he didn't say it with any kind of animosity or anything. Just and so we were talking
1: about that because that's obviously a little bit high. Right, right. The actual is about <laughs> and, what, 50 or so. Right,
0: right. You know, it's the best secular scholars today are saying, you know, five to 8,000 people over 300 years, and, and most of them killed by the civil government. Right. Um, so I, I, I get the sense that, and this is just a guess at this point, that Mike is not does not go to church. He's probably not Christian in any, any overt sense, even if he might have been raised that way. He might not believe anything at all. Um, and But I, I sense he's also kind of curious. I mean, he's curious about the fact that I, I'm a Catholic who works from home and writes books and edits and stuff. And so uh, hopefully, you know, we'll get to a place where we'll talk. And, and it could be that maybe he does live kind of a practical atheistic life, not in the sense that he's a bad person, because from every, every indication, he's a very devout family man, uh, um, very good guy. So, you know, it takes time to figure these things out. And my friendship with him is not just based on trying to figure him out, so to speak, but I really do what to eventually be able to talk to him about what he believes, and so, you know, it's a little example of maybe how it works, right. as opposed to just jumping down a stroke, so what do you believe about the Trinity,
1: or... Right, exactly. <laughs> um, I mean, I think part of that is, you know, we, we're, uh, we're incarnational beings, we're not, you know, uh, free-floating intellects, uh, as, as the angels, perhaps, are, well, it, or as I, they are.
0: My interest in atheism honestly goes back to when I was very, very young, because I was always, for some weird reason... Uh, even though I was raised in a fundamentalist background where it was kind of discouraged to really talk with people of differing beliefs. Um, we just knew that we were right, they were wrong, and that should, that should have settled it. I was fascinated always, why do people believe what they believe? Mm-hmm. Not to just um, confront them about it or to tell them that they were wrong, although there's certainly some of that in my in my personality, but I was really fascinated that people would believe different things. Um, and maybe part of that was because I was raised with such a uh, this view of we were so absolutely right. Um, now I do believe, you know, people hopefully won't get me wrong. I do believe the Catholic Church is absolutely the true church founded by Jesus Christ. I'm not saying there's nothing, there's something wrong in believing something's totally true, but when you don't allow yourself to actually be open to hearing what people say and why they believe certain things, then we're going to miss the opportunities actually have a meaningful discussion or or dialogue about where they're at, which could lead to great things of them being touched by the Holy Spirit.
1: Absolutely. And uh, you mentioned there the origins of your own interest in atheism. Can you talk about that a little bit more?
0: You know, I I was thinking about this and preparing for this uh, conversation with you, and I think it goes back to being five or six years old, and this is back in the um, about 1975 or so, and I was raised with a real strong sense of, of things that were happening, oddly enough, in Communist Soviet Union. Um, we had a number of books laying around the house. We had comic books. And I began to read about that, and that was, it was so strange to me to think that people could live in a society where it was outlawed, basically, to, to publicly worship God, to believe in God, to state that you believe in Jesus Christ. And so I think it was then that I began to be really fascinated with this strange idea of, of atheism um, because of that. And to this day, I have kind of a, an interest in, in the former Soviet Union and, and communism and its effect on people. And then later on, as I got into, in high school, I began reading C.S. Lewis and Francis Schaefer who, of course, both addressed atheism, agnosticism, skepticism.
1: Can you br- briefly, can you just, uh, I think most people know who C.S. Lewis is, but can you talk a little bit about who Francis Schaefer is?
0: Oh, Francis Schaefer was a um, a theologian from the Reformed tradition who uh, set up a kind of a community in um, Switzerland, and he would have folks come over there, and he basically was kind of a professor of sorts, although more of a, really, an intellectual mentor and he ended up writing some very influential books, uh, very influential within evangelical groups, uh, especially during the 1960s and 70s, um, books that studied uh, Western culture, um, atheism, agnosticism. Um, one of the books, I think that the title, if I remember correctly, is God is There and He is Not Silent, had a real big uh, impact on me. His books on uh, history of, of Western culture and how it Through the Enlightenment, he began to depart from a Christian understanding, a theistic understanding of the world, Um, had a lot of influence on me. Uh, A great, real great intellectual, um, had kind of an anti Catholic bias to him, and yet um, many of his insights are very Catholic, you know. Mm -hmm. So, uh, Definitely worth checking out, I think, in many of his, his books. And he had a very strong impact, to his credit, to really getting evangelicals in the 1970s to see that abortion really was this horrific evil. Because early on, after Roe v. Wade, many evangelicals had no problem with it, and he was really a voice of conscience uh, for them. So that's a little bit about Francis Schaeffer. He died of cancer, I want to say, in the, um, the 1980s. Does that sound right?
1: I think, yeah, that's I right. I think
0: it was in the late 1980s he died of, of cancer. So... Um, But he was similar to C.S. Lewis in in how he would address some of these things. And C.S. Lewis, of course, in books like Mere Christianity, um, The Problem of Pain, and so forth, really addressed these things as well. So works by those two men in particular they come to mind um, furthered my interest uh, in atheism. And then in Bible college, I went to two years of Bible college as an evangelical. I had a, a great class in apologetics where we spent some time Dealing with atheism from a more philosophical perspective, uh, that was very good uh, because I began to be exposed a little bit to some of the some of the basic philosophical arguments, including those by Saint Thomas Aquinas. Of course, we didn't call him Saint Thomas Aquinas. Right, no, no. <laughs> um, and, you know some of these others, um, the cosmological argument, and and some of these other kind of famous arguments for the for the uh, for a, for a higher being or for God. Um, and then, a really, a key moment in Bible College is I went to a debate. Um, I was going to Bible College up in Saskatchewan, Canada. I went to this was uh, the debate was held at University of Saskatoon, um, and it was between William Lane Craig, Dr. William Lane Craig, who was an evangelical um, philosopher, theologian, apologist, and Dr. Henry Morgenthaler, who was really. Canada's leading abortionist, not just in the sense of performing abortions, but really proselytizing how wonderful it is to have abortions. I mean, this man was really, um, i dare I say, he's evil. (laughs) That simple. They had a series of debates, and one of those was at the University of Saskatoon, and a bunch of us went up to it. And that was really fascinating, because William Lane Craig is a brilliant guy. uh, At that time, he was only about 35 years old. He had doctorates in philosophy and theology. And he annihilated, from a purely intellectual debating standpoint, he annihilated Morgan, Morgenthaler. And the debate was about the existence of God, about atheism. Is it logical to be an atheist? Is it logical to believe in God? And Craig was just really fabulous. And that, I was already interested in apologetics, but just his demonstration uh, of logic, um, he was very, very well spoken, very intelligent man. You can find his stuff on the internet. I highly recommend it. Um, and I saw then, began to see that there's there's a form of atheism that's very prevalent that has very limited intellectual roots, that it's based in an attitude, an emotion, because Morgenthaler clearly had nothing but disdain for anybody who would believe in God, and his argument was essentially, was essentially oh, it's stupid to believe in God. I mean, you could boil it down to that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I thought, well, that's not very convincing. <laughs>
1: You know, right, right.
0: sticks and stones will break my bones, but you know, and um, because I think for myself, even at that time, I believe that well, atheists really do have a lot of intellectual ammunition. There must, be, you know, and so how does a Christian deal with that? Because I had more of a defensive posture, and then watching somebody like Craig um, address this so well and show that there's a, really a lack of thought. And I think in our own time, we can point to people like Sam Harris. Richard Dawkins and others who've put out uh, very highly publicized books, and and I've not read all of those, but I've read one of Sam Harris's book, and it basically boils down to yeah, to to believe in God is stupid, mm-hmm. and not just mm-hmm. stupid, but it's it's dangerous, it's backwards, it's superstitious. It's not a very convincing argument. There's not a lot of um, heft there, and there's no real respect shown for you know centuries of Really great thought and, and philosophical endeavor, and so forth, that have been put forth by Christians, not just Christians, but also Jewish scholars and and others in in these areas. So that was um, those times go, leading up to my early twenties. Those were some of the key uh, key moments there. Mm-hmm. And then one more I would mention um, shortly before becoming Catholic in 1997. I ended up having a written correspondence with a gentleman who was the head of the uh, local Atheist and Freethinker Society. He actually was the founder of it. I had written a letter to the editor. He responded, and we ended up having a correspondence. And that correspondence was quite fascinating, because here was a guy who had founded this society, and it was clear that he had never seriously studied a lick of Christian theology or philosophy. That Again, it was this very emotional um, reaction, that he just hated the idea of God. In fact, it came to the point in my last letter to him that I said, it's clear to me that, if, that you know, it's not that you don't believe in God. You believe in God just as much as I do. It's just that you hate him. Because he would go on for a whole page about how could you believe in a God who would send people to hell to have the, the flesh burned off of their body, and, and he would go in these graphic details about how he believed hell to be. Mm-hmm. And it was clear that he was reacting against this really warped stereotype of an angry, uh, nasty, vicious God mm-hmm. who who really wants to torture people. And it got to the point where he actually said in his last letter back to me, um, in which he ended, up, he indicated that the conversation was over. He said, "Well, I never, I never said that there was no God. I just said that the, that your God does not exist. So here's an atheist." Okay. <laughs> And that gets back to one of the original points. It wasn't that he doesn't believe in any God. He was rejecting the Christian God, or at least his warped notion of who the Christian God was. And I think that's the case for many people, certainly not all. Um, I've had other conversations with people who are atheists where it's quite different, but I think that is the case with a lot of folks, including the Richard Dawkins and and the Sam Harrises. I think they're There's a lot to that.
1: Do you think that, you know, uh, before the interview we were talking a little bit about pop atheism, is this sort of the the sort of uh, atheism that is is described sometimes as pop atheism?
0: Um, I think so. If if by pop atheism we just mean a a kind of superficial, popular level um, animosity towards, specifically towards Christianity, it also extends... In many cases, towards Islam and, and to more orthodox Judaism, um, that is not really rooted in a, an intellectually rigorous um, background, but it's it's more emotional, and it's I think it comes from people. In many cases, again, I will be careful about generalizing, since I warned about that earlier. But in many cases, I think it comes from people who have uh, have never had any uh, real meaningful experience with authentic Christianity for various reasons. And maybe they've been hurt by people who are Christian, or they thought were Christian, or said they were Christian. And they've formed a very emotional um, reaction to what they believe is the the Christian God. And um, it's it's superficial, intellectually at least it's superficial. Mm -hmm. Uh, And yet there's a lot of emotion there. Uh, When you read... And I've read interviews with uh, Richard Dawkins I mean he really hates the Christian God and he, and he has nothing but disdain for Christians he'll talk about oh yeah well people you know kids believe in Santa Claus too uh, as though it's on the same level and believing in a, right. an uncreated eternal higher being um, and he completely overlooks again all of the different um, Theological and philosophical arguments that have been made, um, the evidence from science. I mean, he's a biologist, and yet he, he apparently, from what I've read in reviews, ignores a lot of the things that should raise questions. And there's also a what I've noticed in, in people who maybe practice a certain pop um, atheism is they don't they don't really grapple with the uh, where their belief system ultimately leads. I think this is one of the more interesting things: is mm-hmm. people who say, well yeah, I'm an atheist, I don't believe in God, they don't take it to the logical extreme. They don't follow it to its logical end. Um, for example, from a conversation I had a number of years ago uh, with a lady I used to work with, very lovely lady. Um, we had a really nice friendship, and we ended up having some very frank conversations about religion. She was a former Catholic, and she described herself as as someone who did not believe in God, and she was not at all antagonistic about it. But... What was interesting is I didn't think that she really followed through with where it would ultimately lead. And so we had this interesting conversation one day where I, I said, well, I, I know that you really love your family, your husband and your, your two kids. She says, yes, I do. I said, well, you have been telling me that you don't believe that there's anything beyond this material realm, that what we see in this, this physical world is it, right, that this is just kind of a biological accident. She said, yes. I said, well, how can you, really, how, how can you love somebody? What, when you say you love your husband or you love your kids, is that just some kind of biological quirk, like some kind of anomaly? In, in other words, what is the basis for your love if the only thing that matters is what we can see? She's like, well, I just know that I, I love them. I said, well, I don't doubt that. And in fact, I'm not even doubting your love. What I'm saying is I don't see how your love for them make sense with what you're saying about reality. That if we're just these kind of biological accidents, then to say that I would die for my children or that I would be faithful to my husband or that I would do this or that for my family doesn't ultimately make sense, I don't think. It doesn't add up. And she ultimately said, Well, I've never thought about that. I've never really considered that. And I said, Well, I'm not trying to shake, obviously... (laughs) shake up your, your love for your family, I'm just trying to point out that it doesn't make sense to me to say we're just biological accidents and it's all just a bunch of, that our love for somebody is just kind of a series of neurological, you know, events that happen in our body and we have no control of it, because um, ultimately what you're saying is if we don't have any free will, we really can't love somebody in the sense that we would traditionally think of love from a, from a Judeo-Christian background. And that's that's one of the things I think people don't follow these things through to the logical end.
1: I I think that that reminds me of uh, of Nietzsche and and in some ways his genius. And actually, what I want to do, Carl, is is we'll we'll stop things here now for this episode of Prayer Room Companion, and we'll pick up next time, beginning uh, with continuing that that discussion about you know atheists not following through on the logical conclusions of their discussion. Okay. All right. Thanks, Carl. Thank you, Chris. Again, that's the first part of our interview with Carl Olson on the issue of atheism. Stay tuned for episode 13 of Pray Rome Companion, uh, where we'll conclude this discussion. And as always, if you have any questions, feel free to email me at cbergwald at sfcatholic.org. That's c-b-u-r-g-w-a-l-d at sfcatholic.org. Thank you, and God bless you.